0: Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. A master of moral complexity, Sarah Perry spent her childhood in a strict Baptist community, removed from contemporary culture and steeped in old English literature and the King James Bible. The upbringing has unsurprisingly deeply influenced her writing style described as making the reader alive to the strangeness of the world and of our history. The author of three novels, including the best-selling 2017 British Book Awards, Book of the Year, The Essex Serpent, and latest, Melmoth, Perry talks with Noelle McCarthy on harnessing the power of myth, religion, and mystery. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Kia ora everyone and welcome. I'm Noelle McCarthy and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to our session, The Essex Serpent with Sarah Perry. We'll be here for an hour. And if you could make sure your phones are on silent and if you're tweeting and Instagramming, could you make that both unobtrusive and entertaining? That would be and great. Flattering
2: photos, Yes, please.
1: thank you. <laughs> um, what a thrill, what a thrill it is. To be welcoming the author beside me to Auckland Writers Festival and what a thrilling experience it is to read the novel for which the session is titled. Sarah Perry's second novel, The Essex Serpent, a bestseller for which many awards have been won, too many to list here. It's the story of an English village terrorised and held spellbound by a winged creature that may be lurking in the sea alongside them, or may be a figment of their fevered collective imagination. What we have here is a vivid portrait of London and of Essex in the late Victorian era, peopled with an unforgettable cast a headstrong amateur paleontologist, a pious vicar struggling to reconcile duty with desire, a young woman afire with the energy of a new idea called socialism, and a brilliant surgeon with a disobedient mind working on the cutting edge of science. Meanwhile, in the marshes of Essex, the serpent stirs all of the conflicts that enliven this story between reason and faith, between progress and tradition, love and freedom, all the great dichotomies of the Gothic. And certainly this is a book that feels like Victorian Gothic of the highest order. Think Wilkie Collins, Arthur Conan Doyle, Bram Stoker, all the more extraordinary to think this is a book written by a 21st century author. What is it about the Gothic that engages the imagination and the formidable talents of our guest? And where might I take her to next? Let's find out. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Perry. <laughs> Thank you very much. God, I've wound myself up. I'm yeah, a I'm fan. Not, I'm... <sighs> <laughs> I feel I feel overwhelmed. Why gothic? Why Gothic for you?
2: Um, That's a very good question and one that I'm not always convinced I can give a satisfactory answer to. Um, I didn't admire the Gothic more than any other form of writing, particularly. Um, If you'd asked me who my favourite writer was when I wrote my debut, I might have said George Orwell, possibly. Um, And I remember giving my PhD supervisor the manuscript for After Me Comes the Flood, as a sort of trembling 32-year-old hoping to be told I was a genius, which never happened. Um, And he tapped the manuscript and he said, you are a gothic novelist. And I was horrified (laughs) because I associated the gothic with maidens in nightgowns running down corridors, fleeing an uncle with a widow's peak Mm -hmm. and a cape. Um, But once you have been told the kind of writer you are, you either falsify your work and... Try and get away from it, or you try to understand who you are. So, I began to study the Gothic and I began to understand exactly why it appeals to me. So, the crux of the Gothic is sensations, Mm -hmm. not a genre. It's a feeling, it's a very deep feeling experienced by the characters, experienced by the readers, where transgression seems both seductive and frightening, where you're never quite sure if you're mad or literally haunted. Where your desires are kind of explored in a way that's very exciting, and I think because I was brought up in a very strict religious home, surrounded by ideas of kind of sin and transgression mm-hmm. and actual hell, um, I think it's not that surprising <laughs> that I ended up uh, writing fiction that deals with you know sin and sin as mm-hmm. you know something that is complicated and and desirable sometimes. So. That was a very circuitous answer, sorry.
1: There is so much there and we've only got an hour. But um, I, I, yeah, growing up, what was it like to grow up in a house without, from what I've read, there wasn't a lot of contemporary culture or any contemporary culture in your home. What was that like? Um...
2: I often say, because it's just a really good line, um, that I was born in about 1890 (laughs) Um, and it's because I kind of had the upbringing of a Victorian, young Victorian, Mm -hmm. so it's not that there was no culture, Uh, you know, there was classical music and there was classical literature and I did really, really terrible watercolour paintings that were copies of pre-Raphaelite prints, I was a bit of a dork. and so it was very rich, but also there was no pop music, no television, no cinema, no trousers, no makeup, long hair, you know. Um, I really was like Mary Bennett, basically, um, including the incessant piano playing. Um, I delighted them
1: long enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was there conviction? You know, was there a depth of religious conviction?
2: Deeply. In, in myself and in everybody. And one of the things that's quite hard to convey to people is the idea that religious conviction can be non-supernatural. So uh, it was a, a, almost a Puritan Protestant religion that was born of reason. So um, you have to remember that you know, the Enlightenment was driven by religious faith, that there is an idea that if we are created by a God of reason, then we must mm. be able to understand the world around us. So to me, religion has never seemed superstitious Um, there are other forms of superstitions. And the dividing line between faith and madness... And reason and superstition seems to me to be very flexible, which is why in The Essex Serpent it's really important to me that the vicar, Will, is the one who is most rational about The Essex Serpent because he doesn't believe in a kind of divine intervention that will toss a demonic animal into the black water, but it's the atheist widow who is most kind of compelled and and affected by the strange atmosphere.
1: I'm really interested in the richness of that theme for you because you use those characters of Cora and Will to explore the, the various consolations and limitations of faith and, and reason and the tension between religion and science. Why do you keep coming back to that, do you think?
2: I think I'm interested in writing novels of ideas, um, which sounds really dry, but (laughs) I like to think that a novel can be a novel of ideas and also be compelling and interesting and funny and sad and all of the stuff that we look for in fiction. And so I create my characters and scenarios around the ideas that I want to explore. And you know, for all the reasons that we've said, I will forever be absolutely enthralled to matters of the mind, of madness and faith and science. My father, for example, was a scientist, a physicist. He would do experiments with us. Um, he had a microscope, and I have a vivid memory of him trying to persuade my mum to prick her finger on a, um, on a needle while she was saying so that we could have some of her blood to look at mm. a slide in a microscope. And he had a telescope and he would show me the passage of Halley's Comet in 1986. Um, but he was a six day creationist. And and I'm still trying to reconcile these things. Um, And so it's the great preoccupation of my life, really, is how to live either with faith or without faith in a manner that is kind of ethical and full of wonder, but also full of moral responsibility. I don't know where I sit. I no longer worship anywhere regularly. Um, And so because that's what troubles me and fascinates me, that will always come out in my work, I think.
1: And uh, to go back to that publisher who who looked at the first manuscript and said you're a Gothic writer, you can see how useful Gothic is as a mode for a writer like you, because there's often, isn't there, a moment in the great Gothic stories, the great popular Gothic stories, when the evidence of your eyes, of one's eyes, defies reason. Jonathan Harker is looking at Dracula crawling down the castle walls, and this can't be, but it is.
2: Absolutely, and the really exciting thing about the Gothic is the way that you can explore the sheer number of things that appear to defy reason even when you can readily account for them in science, nonetheless, you are moved to wonder and you're moved to the sublime and you are moved to think about matters which seem to be beyond your comprehension. Um, so there's a scene in the Essex Serpent where Will and Cora see a Fata Morgana, mm. which is a fascinating optical illusion caused by uh, fronts of warm and cold air create a refracting lens and seems to make objects on the coast fly or build up into sort of stacks. I've seen them. I was um, on the coast in North. And way out on the sea, a tower block began to be built before my eyes. Story after story after story. And over the course of about 20 minutes, it receded. And then a balcony would be built to one side. And then another block of flats would be bought next to it. Hundreds of miles out into the, into the sea. And it was a Fata Morgana um, optical illusion. And what's in the book is a flying boat which can happen, this is what the Flying Dutchman mm. was. Um, and even though I knew the physics behind the Fata could have, at the time, drawn you a diagram of a refracting lens, which don't ask me to do afterwards, <laughs> so I've forgotten how, it, I was still stunned. So what is that in us that moves us to a sense of wonder and awe even when you can account for it with a diagram. I find that extraordinary.
1: Do advances in, in neuroscience, in what we know about the brain, there are characters in, in The Essex Serpent who, who live by their love of science. They mm-hmm. adore science and it's galvanising. Um, do developments in science bring you personally, you know, as, as a writer, any closer to a satisfying answer for that? I
2: don't think so because when I read about scientific development um, I am again moved to a sense of awe and wonder at what would motivate women and men to pursue something so determinedly that they are able to uncover this extraordinary stuff. So um, one of the things that fascinates me about medical science in particular is that the devotion that is required by somebody to develop a new surgical technique or to operate on a tiny child. Um, A a baby has just been operated on in utero to close the um, wound that you have um, with spina bifida and he's been born and and, um, the spina bifida has been challenged. Isn't it astonishing that groups of men and women would have spent decades working out surgical techniques that culminated in this? To me, that is similar to an act of faith. It's the same striving towards an ideal. The ideal is very different, but the ability to dedicate your entire intellect and to kind of abnegate everything else towards this extraordinary achievement is almost a matter of faith. So I'm never one of these people who kind of has their wonder in faith cancelled by science. I see it as all part of the same kind of spectrum.
1: And yet we live in a world um, where politically those divides are ever more polarised and polarising. You know, mm-hmm. we see in certain parts of the world where, if you like, the forces of reason and, and, and science and the forces of tradition and religion and, and nationalism seem to be arrayed against each other.
2: Yeah, it's really, it's a terrifying time, actually. And it's a terrifying time to be a person who has any faith at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I certainly, I'm not an atheist, um, my mum recently, my mum asked me something like, "You know, are you still a Christian?" I said, "Yes, I'm just a very bad one, <laughs> <laughs> just not very good at it." Um, you know, but to see religion being utilised, weaponised in the way that it is at the moment. And not just Christianity, obviously, um, is a really horrifying thing, especially when it is used, used as a kind of bulwark uh, to build up a state when Christianity and, and most religions have you know, were in their most pure form anti-establishment, radical. Mm. You know, um, so that's really troubling. But I think that's why the Gothic is coming back. Actually, it's really fascinating watching the fashion for the Gothic historically and where it's coming. It has tended to come back at times of extreme rationality or kind of very tight religion. So, you know, it first turned up post-enlightenment... Mm where people were like, oh, it's really nice that you've calculated the return of the, you know, the orbiting planets and everything, but I really liked it when there was mystery, and Walpole steps in, here's a mystery for you. And then after Darwin, um, you have things like the kind of the body, Gothic island of Dr Moreau, Dracula, mm-hmm. and so on. And now we have another flowering of the Gothic, which I think is a challenge to the two poles, the kind of Richard Dawkins' horror of the, un, of the strained, but equally the weaponization of faith. So gothic is very, very good at sitting in between poles of um, certainty. Mm. That's what it is.
1: And a lot of those popular Victorian gothics you talked about are fictions of anxiety in mm-hmm. lots of ways, aren't they? I mean, you have that rapid escalation of technology, things yeah. like railroads or telegrams yes. or blood transfusions. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I wrote an essay recently on malaria. Um, I'm still not quite sure how I ended up doing that. Anyway, I wrote an essay on malaria, and it was really interesting to see how you can link... Uh, the discovery that malaria was transmitted by the bite of a mosquito, and it was to do with blood, because you know, for literally thousands of years they hadn't been able to work out what the cause was. Um, and then the development of blood transfusions, with you know, Dracula turns up, and you know, certain anxieties around transmission of blood, some of which is very um, unsympathetic because there were sort of national anxieties, nationality anxieties. But yeah, it's, it's always responded to these kind of very large issues and. That tends to be what draws me as a novelist. I'm not particularly interested in, you know, writing about the female experience or writing about my life because I'm very dull. <laughs> um, so it's the large, it's the large matters um, that.
1: And yet you do write about the female experience. You know, you you look at some of they are talking about Dracula, Bram Stoker's feminine characterizations, and you look at them now with the with the benefit of a few of a hundred or so years, and they're <laughs> you know, problematic. To say yeah. the least, multi-layered. Um, Cora in the Essex Serpent is is a fully formed woman, full of contradictions, full of um, different currents. What, how much of a How conscious were you of what had come before in that mode when you created that character?
2: There's a couple of things that really exercised me about this. One of them was my hatred of the phrase, strong female character. (laughs) Um, We really need to stop saying that because Mm. it is always accompanied with faint surprise and congratulations. (laughs) And it's the year of Our Lord 2019, you know, we're still pleased about a strong female character. And also, what does that mean? Why strong? You know, why can't we say interesting, compelling, infuriating, frustrating? Hamlet didn't have to be strong, Mm -hmm. you know, Leah didn't have to be strong. Why, Why do our women characters have to be strong? Why do they have to kind of show qualities which are traditionally associated with a kind of male lead? So I thought, well, I'm going to write a female character who's interesting and flawed and infuriating and kind of you might like her, but if she's not the sort of thing you like, she'll really get on your nerves because (laughs) she's a human being and um, I want my female characters to be human beings um, before... Being female, But there was something else there. Um, Another thing that's very often said to me about the Essex Serpent is, oh, isn't it exciting that you wrote about like a really unusual Victorian woman and they weren't allowed to do that sort of Mm. thing. And it was so exciting reading about a woman that, you know, left the house and did things. And then I grit my teeth and I'm very patient and nice (laughs) and remind people that 20 years before the Essex Serpent was set, you could, as a woman, go and train in the London School of Medicine for women. Women have been voting in local political Elections in the UK since 1843, not since uh, the suffragists um, succeeded in getting a certain degree of emancipation. There were women engineers, scientists, mathematicians, um, you know, women operating in. Um social reform, in penal reform, in criminology Um, and I was very very anxious about the extent to which everybody genuinely thinks that the suffragettes kind of hatched out of an egg in 1918 Mm. or that you know feminism came about because they needed women to make bullet casings because all the men were at the front. (laughs) You know women have been leaving the house and holding intelligent conversations for a very long time.
1: Mm. Thank you very much. Will and um, Cora are matched, aren't they? They may choose to pursue a relationship outside of conventional confines. But was that important to you, to have those polarities? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, So my characterisation, I once did a um, book club for Radio 4, so it's this really um, nice programme on BBC Radio (laughs) in the UK. And um, it's quite a small crowd, very intimate, with this amazing man, James Nocatee, who sort of interviewed me. And then there's questions from the audience, because it's a book club. And this wonderful woman who just adored Cora Seaborn, which a lot of people do, (laughs) And she put up her hand and she said, Cora's so real. You know, she's just so extraordinary. Sometimes I think I'm going to meet her. And, you know, the imp is so amazing. How do you create such characters? And I said, they're plot devices. (laughs) And like a a wave of shock swept through this room. That they are. And I hope that I then flesh them out and make them very realistic. But I wanted a discussion between faith and reason. I wanted to examine the intricacies of physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. I wanted to think about sexual morality. What can I get the reader to forgive? And um, There's a sex scene in The Essex Serpent for which I'm told off. Uh, by women in signing queues roughly once every three weeks who are (laughs) horrified that I allowed it to happen. Um, And my mum's still cross with me. Hang on, without giving... (laughs) I can...
1: I won't give any... No spoilers, but... But without giving too much away, is there a particular aspect of the scene that they're horrified by or the fact Um, it happened at all? I think what they are horrified by
2: is my refusal to condemn it. Mm. Because that's not my job. Um, I'm not a moralist. I hope that I examine questions of morality and ethics very closely and carefully, but it's not my job to say that this was the right or the wrong thing to do, unless I'm writing about genocide, in which Mm. case I have a view. Um, (laughs) But what happened, and throughout the Essex Serpent, there are friendships and intimacies which transgress lines. Mm. Um, In the way they do, and in the way they did at the time, uh, love between women, love between men and women, which at times seems to be purely intellectual, and then in certain moments seems to transgress or move into something more intimate. And traditionally, if there is that kind of a relationship, then something bad happens to at least one of them so that the writer and the reader can
1: agree that you really shouldn't get up to that sort of thing.
2: And the fact that I refuse to do it has really wound people up.
1: (laughs) That's really interesting because a lot of the Gothic stories, a lot of the, the monster stories They end up by reinforcing the status quo, don't they? So they're a sort of an expiation narrative. Yeah, and it kind
2: of... That's the thing about some Gothic fiction, certainly the great pillars of Gothic fiction, Mm. is that it, it, it does both. So it enables you to kind of examine your secret desires. You know, if you read The Monk then you know, whatever you're into, it's not as bad as the monk. So, you know, you're able to kind of Mm. like simultaneously enjoy your own desires Mm. while also feel good about yourself because you're not the monk. And judge him. And yeah, exactly. But what, so that's kind of slightly problematic and I, don't, I never want my fiction to quite do that um, because that's too easy. Mm. Um, and I, in my kind of slightly hippie and relaxed way, I was really shocked by how cross people are, but there was a, a Roman Catholic newspaper, was furious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really annoyed.
1: <laughs> But that's what Gothic has been doing for such a long time, isn't there? When you're looking, I mean, there are many reasons I know, having listened to you just for the last 10 minutes, talking about why the late 19th century is such a fruitful time and place in which to set a lot of these conflicts but there was there a degree of challenge as well as a writer in sort of mining a terrain that would be so familiar to readers? It's a, it's sort of well-known. Yeah, it's and well I, known. I knew
2: exactly what to do, which was to show them an, a 19th century that no one writes. Mm. So this isn't just to do with research and showing that, you know, people were... You know, the, the embankment in London has been lit by electric light since 1873. Uh, the Tube has been running and called the Tube for well over a century. Um, you know, people have been reading the same news. Newspapers. The example that I always use, right, is that I want you to imagine a man who works in, Prudential, in the Prudential Insurance Company, so a famous insurance company, and he wakes up and he's got toothache. And so his wife normally gives him Robinson's marmalade on his toast, but his tooth hurts, so he decides not to have too much sugar. He reads the Times newspaper, and then he gets on the tube to his office in Hoborn. His tooth really hurts, so he decides to go to the dentist, who gives him an injection for the pain, whips the tooth out. When he goes home, he's in a bit of a bad mood, so his wife gives him some Cadbury's chocolate and it's really cold, so they turn on the radiators, so sort of sitting, reading the times by the radiator, tooth out, anaesthetic wearing off. That could have happened yesterday, and it could have happened down to the last detail in 1895. And it really stunned me that nobody had really done that with the 19th century. You have fascinating neo-Victorian fiction, like the French Lieutenant's Woman, Mm which is a masterpiece, but it is constantly talking about how strange Victorians are. And I wanted to do the exact reverse, which was to show that actually they were modern. They were very modern, very recognisable in their manners, their habits, what they ate, what their jobs were, how they travelled, very similar to the way we live now.
1: The other thing about the Victorians is they were... The Victorians, per se, were around for a very long time. It was a very long time, Absolutely, wasn't it?
2: yeah. I mean, you know, it's a 60-year reign. And when you think about my Victorians, as I wrote about in the Essex Serpent, compared to the Victorians in Jane Eyre, Of course, people are horrified that I have people talking in the way they do, but you need to think about what it was like in the UK in the 50s and what it's like now in 2019. That's the same thing. It's the same queen in the same country, totally unrecognisable you know, in transport, manners, music, clothes, everything. So, um, so much changes. We progress at such a a terrifying speed. Um, And so, yeah, that was, as a practitioner, that was my great joy, was to kind of trick people. And I I have a friend who's an academic who has access to these vast archives of usage, of the first usage of words in the English language. Um, And I would never, ever have someone say bicycle. They would say bike. No one said in, they said pub. No one said mother or mama, they said mum. And I got her to check all the archives and establish that all of this kind of modern terminology was in use at the time.
1: Which explains a lot because one of the, the clearest sensations I had having finished this as, as a fan of this sort of stuff was surprise and delight because I thought these things were a finite resource. I thought we were finished with Victorian <laughs> Gothic. There wouldn't be any more. Yeah. And yet this is something new. Thank you, I'm glad. And I, I kind of feel more passionately
2: about it now because when you're deeply embedded in your work and you're telling your story and you're working on your sentences and you're worried about meeting your deadlines, you don't have the distance to assess what, what you're actually doing. And it's only now when occasionally I will be accused of anachronism or someone will be horrified that. Do you know? I, I had a review recently where someone was horrified that that Cora was referring to her companion by her first name and that her companion would refer to her by her first name. When, you know, this was an academic saying this. You know, the Marx family had um, a companion who was a member of the family and they all kind of lived together and she was a political confidant. You know, it it, it, it takes five minutes of research to establish that this is Mm -hmm. the case. But we are so invested in the idea of the Victorians as having covered up the piano legs with taffeta, which was a joke, incidentally, that an American made when he was writing home. he was taking the Mick out of Ameri- of the British. Um, we're so invested in that, and there's, the reason we're so invested is because the more we make the past look absurd, the more we can congratulate ourselves on our progress. And that's particularly pernicious when it comes to women, because the more you say, "Well, of course, you know, Victorian ladies just stayed at home hemming handkerchiefs and producing babies. the more equality looks like a recent phenomenon and something that perhaps we should be grateful for. But if you actually start looking into it and read the diaries of girls who in 1850 would get a carriage into town and do some shopping and come back, then you start to think this is 150 years ago that women were taking it for granted that they can get out and about. And suddenly where we are now doesn't seem quite so advanced.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Melmoth develops, uh, develops themes that are touched on in the Essex Serpent. And, and it also engages in, in a very direct way with many of the concerns of contemporary times, of our time, of violence and injustice, emotional violence, but also violent, violence, you know, physical, <laughs> yeah. physical violence. But the advantage of Gothic as a mode is that it does give you access, doesn't it? You know, something you said earlier, to that depth of feeling, whether it's wonder or awe, or in the case of Melmoth guilt and shame you know what 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 made you want to write that
2: um as a slightly strange answer to this which is that um around the time the essex serpent launched um the world started burning around our ears so this is 2016 and you could hardly be on twitter for five minutes without the body of a syrian child being washed up on a mediterranean Mm. beach and it appearing in your feed or you would wake up in the morning and five men in jumpsuits had been beheaded by ISIS in the desert. The Orlando nightclub massacre happened the day mm. before the book launch and 52 people were murdered in cold blood because of their sexuality. And I wanted to give up writing. I was so appalled that I was devoting my life to what seemed to me at the time to be mere entertainment mm. that I just wanted to give up. And. Um, I thought, you know, I could have used such intellect as I have to be a lawyer, to work for Amnesty, to be a doctor. And what was I doing? I was sitting in my study, working out how best to describe a rain cloud. And it seemed fiddling while Rome burned. And the only way I could convince myself that my working life would have virtue and have meaning was to ensure that my work grappled with what I saw going on around me and I'd had the idea for this book a long time ago after first reading Melmoth the Wanderer and I thought I will write it again and my Melmoth will be a witness and she will bear witness to everything that I'm too scared to bear witness to. So you know, when I was on Twitter and and an image would come up of of that poor Syrian boy, I would be angry and I would mute the account that had sent it because I was too horrified to look. And then I began to think about what Primo Levi said in If This Is A Man about how the act of bearing witness may seem hopeless and may seem inert, but it has moral purpose, actually. Um, And so, yeah, Melmoth is my attempt to make myself believe Mm. that literature matters, that it really matters, and that it can, if not affect change on a large scale, maybe affect individuals. Mm. Oh, thank you. (laughs)
1: Which has always been part of the power of Gothic, hasn't it? Gothic's always been political. Yes. And it has always set the past against the present and, yes. and put them both into direct relation with yeah. each other. Hasn't
2: yeah, it? absolutely. That's one of the great things about the Gothic is the way in which it enables people to kind of... Um, encode their own kind of political desires onto it. So what's really interesting is that at the time of the French Revolution, you know, half of the people who were kind of interested in the Gothic and the sublime thought the French Revolution was just amazing. It's anti-establishment, you know, it's, it's tearing things down, it's turning things over. That's what the Gothic has always done, right? And then the other half of the people thought, well, if you really like the Gothic, you'd understand that you're not supposed to do that sort of thing because it's scary and it's mad. So it kind of, it's always been this perfect way of examining things um, in a way that I think more um, strident forms of, of work or thought doesn't enable you to do, because they're because they're kind of coming down on one side or the other.
1: Do you think that's because it has its own energy? You know, it resists those sort of easy categorizations and. It's never ended. You know, there is always that deep sense of unease in a gothic story. It's dead. Oh, no, it's not dead. It might not <laughs> yeah, be yeah. dead. It
2: might come back again. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Everything's kind of constantly contingent on on like your frame of mind or what the weather is like or, um, you know, what was it they said a moment ago? And so it, it totally resists categorization, It absolutely resists easy answers. It does not enable really people to say, you know, this is virtue and this is transgression. So uh, the, the boundaries are constantly blurred. And when life is chaotic, I actually think that that the kind of the chaotic good <laughs> of the Gothic enables you to kind of understand the chaos around you in a way that more didactic fiction wouldn't quite enable you to do.
1: Mm. You talked about bearing witness and Maturin, who wrote Melmoth the Wanderer, was an Anglo-Irish writer. And of course, those, those Quaker accounts of the Irish famine. Yeah massively powerful and horrifying. Bearing witness is a horrifying thing and can be a horrifying thing.
2: Absolutely. And it's really interesting actually to look at the Gothic writers and to see what their interests were, where their heart lay and Charles Robert Matrim was an amazing man, I mean he was as mad as a march hare, he was completely impoverished Mm. because the Irish church was so, English-Anglican church in Ireland was so horrified by his behaviour that they just kept cutting his stipend (laughs) in the hope that he would get so hungry that he would get another job, but he didn't, he just starved, Um, but he continued to wear these beautiful clothes and was a very good dancer and was sort of rather decadent Mm. but then when he mounted the pulpit he would spend a very long time dressing down his English congregation for not having done something about the poverty of the Irish peasants that they Mm. saw around him and he said this is your responsibility so it's really interesting as a scholar to compare his sermons with his work um and, and to sort of think about the fact that he wrote this book that's horrifyingly violent and has mm. incest and cannibalism and rape and murder and you know, a great sex scene and a thunderstorm on a mountaintop, But to also understand that it's really profound and really angry about religious abuses and about man's inhumanity to man. Mm. And it's, uh, the Gothic kind of lets you have your cake and eat it in a way that I think is very um, compelling. for satisfying. People. <laughs> yeah.
1: You changed the gender. You changed Melmoth's gender. Yeah. Tell me about that.
2: Um, I can remember, even as a very young person, uh, like 12 or 13, thinking it was very unfair that the great titular monsters uh, tended to be male, um, and thinking that it was high time there was a, a great female monster. And you know what? This is a really interesting feminist point, because if you read about uh, the kind of really hor- sorry, the horrifying kind of female criminals, we have a tendency to deny them agency. Mm by saying they only did that because X, Y, and Z. So Myra Hindley, You know, did what she did because she was kind of compelled to do it introduced by um, Ian Huntley or Rose West kind of did all the things that she did because she was completely enthralled to Fred West and I totally understand that there is almost certainly a level of truth in that but it shows a persistent unease with the idea that women can just be monsters and that they are just as capable of it as men and I feel like that's kind of the other side of the equality coin is that Mm -hmm. if if you have agency in everything you also have agency in wickedness so I decided to write a female Monster, and then found that my complete inability to write a villain meant that I just then sympathised with her. Yes. So I didn't, I didn't actually do a very good job. But I, I don't—I genuinely don't think that there are good people and bad mm. people. And so I'm, sometimes people say to me, "Why don't you ever write villainous characters?" And I was like, mm. "I don't believe there are villains. I, I just don't." And then I thought, "Well, I'll show them. I'll write a monster, and then ended up making her kind of rather sad and pathetic." So.
1: <laughs> um, Not everyone liked Melmoth. Do you think it was read as a rebuke?
2: Yeah, because it nakedly is. I mean, it's quite preachy (laughs) (laughs) because Melmoth, um, so if you've not read it yet, it's kind of an homage to Melmoth the Wanderer. And Melmoth the Wanderer is lots of nested narratives. And I decided to do lots of nested narratives, um, calling individuals and nations to account for atrocity. And the premise of my Melmoth is that there are no good or bad people. We don't get to exculpate ourselves for anything. Um, JFK once said the ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of us all. And we all have a collective and an individual responsibility to change what we're seeing around us. And you don't get to say, I'm a good person. If I lived in Berlin in 1933 you bet I wouldn't have voted for the Nazis because good people voted for them too. There were people mm. who went to medical school in Germany um, in the Nazi party the highest proportion of membership was in the medical profession and when you see that terrible footage of people in the death camps in two columns and they're being examined and some of them go straight to the death camp and some of them go to labour, that was doctors those doctors did not wake up at the age of Mm -hmm. 18 and go and study anatomy with the intention of sending people to a death camp but somehow their goodness got twisted or they were lazy or they didn't understand the role that we all have to play so It's like we're all parts of a machine. So this is a book that kind of insists that we have to play our part. Or, I mean, you can see what's happening around us everywhere. Um, And so very notably, the first two reviews were Hatchet Jobs, and they were both in very right-wing newspapers. (laughs) And I was slightly hurt, and then I thought, frankly, if the Murdoch press likes my work, then I'm going to resign. So... (laughs) 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 Um.
1: You, you mentioned religion and, and your belief, where it's at now. I'm interested in how that intersects with not just your writing, but your development as a writer. You know, Did, did your imaginative power come from your early experiences in the household you grew up in?
2: I'm sure yeah. it must have done, because the whole premise of scripture, really... Is that you can understand anything by telling a story. Mm. Anything, there is no concept so vast or so complex that, uh, that someone who understands a situation well could not explain it by telling you a story. And I find that really thrilling. I absolutely stand by it um, and that's what being brought up with the Bible taught me. And when I say brought up with the Bible, I mean, we read it before every mealtime. I recited, memorised and recited passages of it. Um, You know, I was taught at a Sunday school and youth club for years and years and years. And um, it taught me something really important. So my parents may have kept popular culture away from me, but no idea was too big or too complicated to be explained to me. So from a very early age, I simultaneously was reading these extraordinary narratives of kind of love and violence and kind of improbable coincidences and miracles and, you know, all of that great stuff that kids like to hear about, but was also thinking about sin, redemption, eternity, love, all the different kinds of love. You know, I would have been about... 12 when I understood that the common Greek had five different words for love and that there's all different kinds of love and you know these are vast ideas so often my youth is kind of cast as being diminishing intellectually diminishing because I wasn't watching EastEnders. but you know (laughs) um, but there was other stuff that I understood that was you know almost as entertaining and uh, as as profound.
1: Again, that affinity with that particular time in history, with Victorian history, is suggesting itself in what you've just said. Because to generalise, the Victorians were always thinking about big ideas, weren't they? They were always thinking, how do we make cities better? How do we deal with poverty? How do we deal with sort of um, sort of neologism, globalization, yeah, whatever yeah. it is—these are the things they were thinking about, yeah. weren't they?
2: Yeah, and I've, I've often wondered, like, what's the difference between that and now? Um, because there is still an enormous, you know, obviously kind of constant, extraordinary advances in technology. But the difference seems to me to be that very often now, and this is slightly unjust, and I'm aware that it's unjust—it's tied up with money and mm. capitalism and and sort of getting money out of you. But the Victorians seem to just want to do things because they wanted to over-engineer everything and make everything roughly 56 times more beautiful than it needed to be so you know very famously and i'm sure you all know this the london sewers are still the sewers designed by basil jet and you can go down into the sewers and they've literally got like raw iron pediments for sewage to flow under because if you're mm-hmm. going to make a pen- pediment you might as well make it attractive <laughs> and this is like this is at the crux of the victorian kind of idea is that everything deserves the fullest extent of the application of the mind which is really really Mm. interesting um and not, there is a subtle change now, I think, in how, um, you know, in the value of things and of things being valued in a kind of economic way rather than just for...
1: Yes, because there's a moral dimension to that too, isn't there, to yeah. that Victorian idea?
2: Yeah. yeah, and this is something I've thought about a lot and that I'm writing about at the moment is is um, the extent to which aesthetic excellence has, mm. has moral purpose. Mm. This is a really... I'm, I mean, I did say I was born in 1890. I'm just so <laughs> old-fashioned. And, and I think there is something there I think the pursuit of beauty or the pursuit of excellence does have moral virtue and I know that sounds kind Mm -hmm. of absurd but you know it's Aristotle kind of toyed around with this idea and about what it means to be good is that beauty is it nobility is it moral virtue what is it and I find it really interesting that you might pick up a book and say this is a really good book what does that mean do you mean that it's artistically excellent or do you mean it has ethical purpose what is that
1: which is a very Victorian idea. And yet the yeah. notion of an improving book is, is oh. just exhausting, just isn't awful. it? Yeah. You know, who wants yeah. to read that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, I, and it's really interesting that, you know, I say I write, wrote a book to kind of rebuke the nations and the state of the world, but I mean, I would never write an improving novel. But, um, I suppose I would always want it to be entertaining and beautiful. And mm. then, you know, if you get improved by accident, it's not my fault. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about place? You know, the Essex Serpent, I grew up in the Northern Hemisphere where the idea of Essex was nightclubs and dancing around your handbag. Yeah. You know, it certainly wasn't yeah, yeah. the sort of zenith of, of Gothic beauty yeah, and, yeah. and ideas.
2: Yeah, that was really important for me and I, I'm, I'm writing about this at the moment as well. I'm, I'm giving a lecture back in the UK in a couple of weeks' time. Um, on Essex girls mm. and um, Sharon and Tracy yeah exactly um, and so you know Essex is associated with the vulgar the unthinking the ugly with new towns um, but I'm, I was born and brought up in Essex and my Essex was marshlands and mists mm. and huge fields of oilseed rape and strange little houses that are pink for some reason um, and, and Roman history and someone uncovering Roman pottery in their back garden which we would occasionally do um, and so I I wanted to resurrect Essex. And one of the things that's most moving is that quite often I'll do an event and someone will come up to me who's from Essex and has emigrated or lives in another part of the country and is almost in tears with gratitude. <laughs> that this is the Essex I was brought up in, which is really nice. Mm. Um, but yes, it's it's quite funny explaining to foreign, you know, to when I'm overseas, explaining to people in Stockholm or something, I just need to explain what an Essex girl is. <laughs> and really Does it translate? Um, most countries have, have something that is equivalent. Girl. There's always, like, in America, I think it's... Um, New Jersey, mm. uh, somewhere in Jersey. It's like the equivalent thing of like you're a little bit common and like you can't mm. afford to live in the actual city, but you're getting as near to it as you can and you wear a lot
1: of fake tan. Mm. <laughs> and part of the, the cliche and the mocking of it is snobbery too, mm. isn't it? I yeah, mean, absolutely. Those, but, but your Essex is also a place sort of of, of a certain time, of a how did that topography sort of suggest itself to you in the 21st century? Because you had the, presumably, you had the idea for this not that long ago.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I have always been very strangely attuned to and affected by place. So... It will not surprise you to find I lost my mind when I crossed the equator. <laughs> and uh, well, as soon as I noticed the moon going backwards, I basically had a nervous breakdown. Um, that is very so, gothic. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, re- I, I mean it. I am, I am very, very easily spooked out or destabilised or seduced by my surroundings. And I am so much a child of the marshes and of Essex and East Anglia. I, I'm so... Um, I don't know how good your geography of the UK is, but Essex and Norfolk and Suffolk is East Anglia, and that's on the southeast of the UK and upwards. I don't even like West London. That's how (laughs) much of an East person I am. I mean, I I genuinely don't. The geography's wrong, the light's wrong, it's all strange. But anywhere in the East, I I kind of relax, and I breathe, and I feel at home, and I feel like, you know, if you cut me, marsh water will come out. This is where I'm most myself. (laughs) Um, And so setting it there was a complete no-brainer because it's still like that. So um, if you look at the Essex marshlands from above, um, it's it's endless acres of creeks trickling in between the mud, and it's a very liminal space, so the tide will come in, and then it will recede, and it will leave... This extraordinary sight, actually, um, particularly in Norfolk. Seaweed draped over lavender, over sea Mm. lavender. So the land and the sea coming together in this amazing way. You can hear the water come in. It doesn't wash in like this. It comes up from underneath. It's amazing. Um, it's diminished now because we have coastal defences. So hundreds of thousands of acres have been lost back to the sea. Um, But I wrote The Essex Serpent basically in real time. So I began it in January and I went to Essex in January and sort of stared at the hedges. Mm. And then when I was writing the April section, I went to Essex in April and sat in a bird hide, stared at the marsh. Mm. Um, So it's deeply, deeply engaged with the land that is where I'm most myself and most at home
1: that must give you a lot of anxiety in at this time you know when the existential threat of climate change is is everywhere
2: yeah Yeah, we had a very strange period in February I want to say February it may have been March it went up to 20 degrees in Norfolk it was absolutely extraordinary and the thing that (laughs) sent me slightly nuts was that people were walking around in t-shirts eating ice cream mm. saying what fun it was that it was winter but they were sunbathing where of course I was sort of cowering in a corner <laughs> everything's wrong mm. it's broken the world is broken um yeah which could
1: almost be a line from yes <laughs> Everything is wrong, dot com. <laughs> <laughs> my new website name did the essex serpent? Change your life, you know the reception of it and the awards and the and all of the things that come with that. Uh, yeah,
2: I'm completely. Um, I don't come from a well-to-do family. I've worked since I was 17, put myself through university. Always assumed I'd be poor. Um, never thought that I would get this many people in an audience. <laughs> so thanks. Um, <laughs> I had a very clear image of my journey, which was to be an academic. So I was an academic. Um, and to be writing slender volumes that would be read by a handful of devoted fans. And respectable. Maybe, yeah, respectable, respectable novelist. And then maybe when I was about 60, finally, um, maybe winning something. Um, and, and so we completely, completely staggered, completely staggered by it. Um, I don't understand, but I'm very grateful. And I was also very ill at the time. So um, there was a very strange year where I endured a great deal of pain and um, surgery on my spine um, while the Essex Serpent was taking off. And the whole experience of the Essex Serpent can be distilled into the image of me lying prone on a sofa, high on tramadol and diazepam as I attempted to recover from a catastrophic spinal injury uh, while the Times journalist came to the house to interview me um, and my husband loitered in the corridor because he was afraid that the drugs would make me say something stupid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the heroine on a couch in a drug-induced yeah. haze. Yes. Very gothic? Yeah, I can't escape
2: it, I try really hard,
1: but... Well, that's another question. Will you, will you escape it? I mean, gothic is allowing you to explore the ideas that set your mind on fire, but will it keep doing that or is it, will you need um, to change? I
2: think the answer to this is that I will and I won't because there is the gothic and there is the gothic. So there is the gothic sensation and the gothic feeling, which is how I perceive the world. So me standing outside the Sky City Hotel and realising the moon was going backwards and genuinely wanting to cry and Mm. then not knowing if my tattoo was wrong or the moon was wrong and being too scared to Google it and then being really angry that no one had talked, that won't change. Hang on, your tattoo was wrong? I have a tattoo. Um, which I got on a women in Brooklyn um, and it has a moon on it and I very carefully had the moon tattooed to be waxing so that I would always have light growing on my arm isn't that nice? And then I looked at the moon here and I thought it, my tattoo's wrong. And for, <laughs> and the moon's then, wrong. For three days, I was so embarrassed about having a mistake on my tattoo that I didn't Google it. And then I thought, no, it must be that the moon's wrong. And then I looked it up. And then of, of course, of course the moon is upside down. Of course it is. Mm. But it just hadn't sort of occurred to me. So that tendency of mine <laughs> will not change, but there are motifs and forms of the Gothic which are conscious. Mm. And I feel that I've written a Gothic trilogy, each one playing formally and experimentally with the Gothic. So my debut being a psychological Mm. Gothic, you have the Victorian monster Gothic and you have the Gothic horror. And so I, I consider that the closure of my Gothic trilogy. So the book I'm working on now, what I'm trying to do is to not consciously inhabit the gothic to consciously do something completely different and allow the tide to come up Mm -hmm. if it if it wants to
1: to bubble in yeah yes you talked about your response to um political contemporary sort of realities what am i doing you know what what and this has come up in an earlier session that i was doing you know writers interrogating what they do, their vocation, and saying, you know, at times like this, what's the point of what I do when it is painstaking and solitary? How do you feel about that now?
2: I think I have persuaded myself that there is reason and purpose in what I do. And in a bizarre way, the furious, savage response to it from certain sections of the press kind of affirmed that for me. Because I realise that if you can write work which makes people angry, but also consoles and challenges, um, then it is acting in some way. Um, and what I want is to matter. I want my, me and my books to matter for, if they, for it to be the case that if I had never existed, there would be some difference somewhere, even if it's only very small. And I think... I've persuaded myself that that's Mm. the case. But I think for every book I will need to locate purpose and to justify it Mm. and to say, what is this doing? Does it it have... Has it earned its place, you know? Has it earned the reader's time? Mm. And and for it to never be kind of worthless in that way.
0: Mm. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.